Pam's back. Yay. Yep. Pam, how was your vacation? Well, vacation and working remotely week. Ooh. It was really good. I am pretty much completely convinced that anyone with the means to work remotely and means to go somewhere else and be somewhere else should skip winter and go somewhere warm. What if you don't like summer? Can I skip summer? Yeah. I mean, right. when I worked, uh, I worked at one place where we talked about uh, going to Vermont for like a month in the summer. Mm. That'd be awesome. Vermont so is like, so cool. Somewhere like, summer. yeah, where it's like, it's not, it's not that it's cold there, but it's just very pleasant. Don't even run like there. Snowboarding. He was snowboarding in Chile in the summer because that's their winter. And it's a similar time zone. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that was one of my criteria for where I went. So I, for Belize, it was it's in t- the central time zone. Okay. And so most of South America can, well, not Central America, but you can do any of Central America and South America pretty much. Unless, I guess, some of it, I don't know. I'm not good at time zones. I just so anywhere like North central. or South America is okay-ish. Yeah, but Cal- like the funny thing is that California or Hawaii would be kind of bad. Because three hours is actually a really big difference. Like, one is pretty okay. You could just get up really early. Nah, that kind of sucks. Work like six to two and then take the rest of the day off. Yeah, it's yeah, not that sucks. early if you don't adjust your time zone. You'll just have to go to bed like <laughs> a normal person. Go to bed at like... Just keep like, the job. Right, you'll go to bed at like 7 p.m. <laughs> I go to bed at like nine anyway. So were you working from the beach? I did not work from the beach, but we did have a... We rented an Airbnb that was... Uh, it, the the room or cabana was called the pool house, and literally there was a pool right outside the door. Mm-hmm. From the beach, pretty awesome. Your laptop, come on, man. Yeah, salt water. What are the highlights of your trip, Pam? Um, actually, that part was pretty well. I just really, really liked being able to just kind of do my regular routine, except somewhere warm. Mm. So I liked that. It and I did some like I did some gone. vacation stuff that was good too. But it did snow once while you were gone, I think, or maybe twice. Yeah, maybe it snowed like the second day I was gone. Mm. So I was really pleased to see that. How were the foods? Oh, food. Eh, it was all right. I survived. It's weird. It's hard to find vegetables. Hmm. Because the people and people in Central America don't apparently eat vegetables. <laughs> so lots of meat pork. and beans and rice diet. Not so much pork. A lot burritos. of chicken. Huh? That's a recipe for burritos. But yeah, I mean, since I eat a diet of mostly vegetables, it's weird for me to go somewhere where I'm eating rice and beans a lot. Did you buy groceries or try to eat out? I did buy groceries. Uh, for So we uh, I cooked breakfast like every single day of the first week. So I made some vegan French toast a um, few days and we had oatmeal as well and we got popcorn. So we had breakfast and snacks covered and we'd have like some fruit for breakfast because fruit is common. And that was easy. So. You know how much money you spent per day? Just like if someone wanted to go work remotely, what what would they expect? It depends. Yes, like including housing. It depends. Yeah, I wouldn't include housing because your housing is going to vary widely. But also, you know, I I actually I appreciated springing for a nicer place because we, we ended up, because we were working, we ended up hanging out there a lot. And then we also had a kitchen there. So that that's why I took advantage of it for breakfast. And a few days we didn't uh, even go out for lunch. We would just eat oatmeal or something or leftovers from the night before. And so because my kind of goal to spend on food was like under $20 a day. So that and that's, you know, I think that's pretty good since considering I can very easily spend like $50 a day on food in Philly if I <laughs> ate out every meal. So did you and your friend collaborate on anything? A little bit. Um, I wrote an article while I was there, and on and it I was doing a side by side of 
two JavaScript frameworks uh, that, uh, and Lynn actually helped me a little bit too. Uh, as you know, side by side of Ember and Marionette, or not Ember, sorry, uh, Amberstan and Marionette. And my friend uses Amberstan and Len uses Marionette. And so I'd, we would just chat about it and that helped me with the article. Is Amberstan the one from Angia? Yeah. Angia? It's actually, it's, it's really cool. That logo, right, Justin? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very Amberstan curious. Because <laughs> usually what I say about, about Marionette is that I like that I could use like little pieces here and there. But you still have to include the whole library. So if you wanted to use like just the views, you still have to include all of Marionette. And Ampersand has just a more piecemeal approach. So you could only include the Ampersand view module. When you say include, you're just talking about like download time because it includes it all in your scripts. Right. Like you so it's like 50k of JavaScript. But I mean, but the browser so does also execute all the JavaScript too. Oh, uh, okay. I guess that matters then. Have you all read the And Yet Human JavaScript book? Mm-mm. I have not. Should we? I want to read that. And I, I you know, because I think if you're interested in Amberson, I think that's actually one of the, and you, and you like, you have to, I guess, like technical books. But I think that that's one of the best places to start because it kind of, I think it seems like just from reading what little of human JavaScript I read when I started, I tried starting it a while ago. It seems to talk about JavaScript in such a way that you kind of understand the practices that then led them to the Amberstand stuff. What's the specialty of this book? Or does it talk about what well, says human JavaScript? Human JavaScript? I think it's just a. This is like pull it up because I don't want to JavaScript. say something ridiculous, but <laughs> no, I don't think it's readable JavaScript. I think it's just, I think it is building a book about opinion, I guess, opinions about building JavaScript, um, but in general, kind of like in the intermediate level of. So you're writing JavaScript and you're, you yourself are going to have to maintain it and other people. So that's why it's human JavaScript. So you're writing it, writing your code for other people, but it really means, you know, what does that mean to write code for other people? Well, let's try and do things that in a sane way that are expected so that when someone picks up what you wrote, they know what to do with it. And I think that's a really good idea. I mean, just it's so almost a, oh, do you guys think that that sounds like, it sounds like bringing more conventions into JavaScript. That sounds really sensible, but that sounds antithetical to JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, because part of the thing of JavaScript is you can just do whatever you want, whenever you want. Right. And it also is why you get really interesting stuff out of JavaScript, because people do weird things. But at the same time, like if you write a web app, like if you don't have a special unicorn web app, you're writing Node, then maybe you should write your the front end in a sane way. Are any of the conventions, like, do they become moot once ES6 comes around, or are they kind of, like, not really related to that? No, I think, actually, a good number of the conventions that people are advocating for now are are friendly to ES6, especially, I'm I'm thinking of one specific example of modules. Yeah, I was going to say classes and then modules. Right, so modules, if you're using, I mean... If you're following, quote, best practices, debatable, if you're using a, a common JS style inclusion, then you're pretty much ready to go to ES6 for modules. Right. It's, it's really kind of a syntax thing. So you would be able to, if you convert it over all the way, you could just rip out that part of your build process, I suppose. So I was playing with uh, ES6 like a week ago. Um, in like tracer or no no I, I so I wrote the URL shortener I write in uh, I wrote it in JavaScript and Node and then I also wrote it in CoffeeScript which was you know fairly easy to port over and then I used six to five and uh, used that to write it in ES six and I I kind of liked it um, 
the two, well, first of all, the uh, module imports and exports, those map to, I guess, Node uses a common JS style. Or, I don't know, for, there's a doc on the 65 website about modules, and it will show you, like, what you type in ES6 and what comes out depending on what you're using. And it, <clears throat> it had a really nice um, syntax. Like, I like the, uh, instead of assigning a exported module to a variable, you just say import variable name from module name. Almost kind of like Python. Um, that was really nice. And then uh, one of the things I end up doing in a lot of languages is like using a hash or a map. And ES6 has its own map class. So instead of just like assigning things as keys on an object, I could actually create a map and then set and get keys. And the other thing I do pretty often is um, generate an ID based on incrementing a number. And I was able to use a, uh, what was it called? Generator, which is, as far as I'm concerned, like an enumerator in other languages. Uh, I can make a generator that just increments itself and then returns itself as a string. So every time you call, I think, next on it, it will just return the next string number. Uh, and that was pretty cool. And then uh, I did things like the structuring uh, assignment, and then I used like let and const where it made sense. And yeah, it was pretty cool. I like it enough that if I was writing another JavaScript app, I might try ES6 transpiling instead of CoffeeScript. Yeah, I've also given up the ghost of CoffeeScript, um, sadly. It's hard for me to get excited about ES6 because all the features we've had in CoffeeScript. Yeah, I still feel weird doing things like using three calls for comparison and having to like really like tiptoe around, like, what am I doing with this number or value or undefined? Um, but I think it's like good enough now. I don't know. So many curly braces. <laughs> so many curly braces. So many, so many semicolons. Well, so what's making you give up on CoffeeScript? Well, ES6 is going to happen someday, and I don't see the path uh, where CoffeeScript and ES6 get resolved. So, you know, they both have the uh, concept of a class, mm-hmm. and they mean different things in both uh, both languages. So I don't understand. I don't think there is a plan for CoffeeScript class to ever support ECMAScript 6 class. Basically, nobody writes CoffeeScript anymore except for Ruby developers. <laughs> uh and I, th- I feel like if you're going to use uh, another language to compile a JavaScript, you might as well like go off the deep end and use like ClojureScript or PureScript or something. But if you're going to write something that just is kind of JavaScript-ish, just write ES6, it's fine. This coming from a JavaScript expert, obviously. Len, we didn't talk about last week. You got back from CodeMash. Yeah. How was CodeMash? CodeMash went by in a blur. I didn't go outside for five days. <laughs> so I said before, Codemash is in the Kalahari, which is an indoor water park in Ohio. And it was negative 24 outside with wind chill, but we didn't go outside for like five days. You didn't do like a polar bear test where you like ground the water slide and then run outside in your bathing suit and then run back in? Um, no, but th- people did go outside from the hot tub. They said their, their hair froze. <laughs> so you're in the hot tub and your hair's frozen. Nice. But it was fun. How are the board games? I played a lot of Resistance. It was fun. I love Resistance. It gets like... So Resistance is a kind of a werewolf mafia type game where you lie to each other. And it gets more and more meta. So I played with the same people like two nights in a row and it was, it was really fun. Did you get any talks? Uh, I went to a few on Elixir and I ended up becoming Elixir curious too. And dabbling with Elixir. The language Elixir? Yep. Not like just random Elixirs. <laughs> Well, I think there's also, I feel like there's a CSS thing called Elixir, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Elixir seems really nice. Very Ruby-ish functional language. How does, have you played with Phoenix at all? 
Yeah, yeah. Phoenix is uh, a Rails-ish framework uh, built in Elixir. And does that feel Does that feel ready to go as far as like developing an app in it? I mean, I was doing pretty basic Hello World type stuff, but I think you know they did learn a lot of lessons from Rails, and I like I like that things were more explicit than Rails, so it was very Rails-ish, but less magic. I guess my question is like, did you run into a lot of problems when you were trying it, and then when you ran into a problem, was there like a convention or a README or documentation or somebody to say like, hey, you should do it this way? Um, documentation is pretty good, but nice. um, yeah, I didn't run into any problems. But what I they love about Rails is that the Rails guides are like really flushed out and cover most use cases for using Rails itself. Yeah. Yeah, I normally tend to build single-page apps anyway, so my, my servers just return JSON. Hmm. Could you just plug it into MongoDB then? I could. It's got a REST API, I think. Does it? anyone build like single-page apps with any of those like uh, back-end-as-a-service companies? Like what's like Parse and the other one? I think there's no one called Firebase. Yeah, I've not tried. It seems cool. I guess the question you always run into is like, I have some server side logic I need to perform at some point. You know, can I do that? And how do I do that? Right. Like, do I upload a script to their service? Do I ping something to get data? And then, like, do I need to write like a separate app, like as a worker that does that thing? Yeah, it's terrifying to think about you know becoming backed into a corner with something like that. If you did Rails or Node or some other language, you just know you could always build whatever you want. Yeah. Amazon has one too now, right? A backend as a service? Mm-hmm. What is it called? I forget. Oh, okay. I can look it up though. I know they have databases like there's Dynamo and SimpleDB. Um, and they have that server-side processing thing they're working on called Lambda, which is like you upload JavaScript and it does things based on events. But I didn't know they had like a... Like a solution in a box like that. Every time I think about like writing an app, I'm like, how can I use Amazon services for this and avoid using my own database? I love the idea of just like writing writing an application using whatever language I want, and then having no persistence and no no state in the server and storing everything on Amazon. But every time I'm like, I don't know if I can do this one thing that I need to do. Like like Len and I were talking about yesterday. Like if I needed to do geolocation in an app, like. I pretty much have to use Postgres or Mongo. Like, can I actually use Amazon's data stores and and do like geolocation searches? I have to research that more. Probably just an excuse for me to use Postgres for everything. <laughs> Postgres is nice. So I'm not sure if this is it, but uh, there's a thing called Amazon Cognito, and the description is it makes it easy to save user data such as app references and game state in AWS Cloud without writing any backend code. Oh, cool. That sounds like it then, yeah. They also have a push notification service. Yeah, it's probably just safe to assume Amazon does everything. Does Amazon do end-to-end tests? Oh. (laughs) Segway. Good good transition. (laughs) So, Jervon, you wanted to talk about end-to-end testing? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I often hear the argument when working with someone or on a team that we have to test this end-to-end with the real API because we don't know if the real API is going to change and this test will let us know. I think it's kind of a, um, a false security argument as we have it. Um, and I wanted to get the panel's thoughts on it. So I think, I mean, to take your job, Trevon, I would ask for us to define what we exactly mean when we say end-to-end test. Because um, there, guess... are, there are lots of kinds of tests, and end to end is end is more obvious than the other ones. But so I would I would say it is um, 
running your application in a test environment, like not not smoke testing like production or, or development or something, but running your test suite in a in a test environment, either locally or on CI, where it has to talk to actual services to assert that everything's working. So you mm-hmm. think that that's so you so I actually I kind of disagree with that. I think of end to end testing as the stuff that you would have written so that you can run it in production. So, so that's, that's my, my, my argument is that you can avoid writing end-to-end tests in. So, yeah, I guess. Um, hmm. Let's call it integration testing. A test that touches multiple parts of your. But that's app. the thing: is that integration yeah. testing can be a different thing too, because integration testing could be the smaller. So, if I have items one, two, and three, and I test something that tests the connection of one and two, that could be an integration test. But an end-to-end would be testing one, two, and three. Okay, let's go with this definition. We're going to talk about a test that hits multiple parts of your app or the stack, but uses real services. So, so yeah, so, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I kind of think of like everything like in a line. So like a user uses the front end interface, which does something in you know Rails in my case usually, which then talks to some other code underneath, which then talks to some service externally. I kind of think of that like as a line. So I think of like a unit and a line with like little stops on it. Um, so I think of a unit test as testing only one of those things. An integration test, testing the lines in between them. And an end-to-end test, thinking, uh, testing everything all together, like front to back. Um, so yeah, in, in my experience, I feel like the, the more you try to test end-to-end, the more and more pain you experience. And obviously the slower and slower your test suite gets. And I feel like at some point, you don't actually gain any confidence that your app's actually working. You're just spending an enormous amount of time on testing. Right. I'll see the like, thing I, where, you know, people fight for 45 minutes getting the acceptance tests to work. And then it turns out they just broke the CSS and they never actually looked at the site. They just played with the test. 45 minutes sounds low. <laughs> I was being generous. <laughs> so, well, then we're talking about, I guess there are two things here, right? There's the, the real services and then... There's, do we want to write this test up, test everything besides the happy path? Or so you're, yeah, you're talking about like if you're having an app that posts to Twitter, that you'll test that the tweet like actually exists on Twitter. Yeah, or like if you're using Redis as a database, or like you're testing it going through all the way. Um, but if you're like a unit test, uh, expecting like certain parameters or passing in the parameters that Redis would give to you. Um, your test suite would be less brittle, and you wouldn't need Redis to run if you need to test. You know? So, so yeah, I, I see- guess to, like what to what Pam was saying that she thinks of end-to-end testing as you know, like in production. Uh, I kind of I like that approach because I think you well, I think that's one of the most useful. Yeah, that's, like like, and that's why I mean, I I really haven't gotten to write like as much end-to-end tests as I probably would like to, but it's. It's really appealing to me because it's one of those computers can do better jobs than humans kind of things in some cases. If I run it on a schedule, if I run those tests on a scheduled job, like, you know, whatever, once, twice, 12 times a day, then that's, you know, that's the computer checking. And so if something's happening that my other stuff didn't catch, because honestly, I guess you should have some stuff to check the uptime of other services in your alerts. So you should know that. But something that goes through the UI and says, like, is the UI behaving correctly and all that jazz? And it could possibly catch it before a human catches it. So um, I have a way to tie these two, and I guess 
what if you're doing test and production, right? But you don't control the basically your app is uh, a glue for maybe two APIs, and you don't have control over the database or the data in those APIs. Like, how do you set up uh, the right data for your smoke test? And is it worth it to go through all that trouble to like try to set it up and then delete it and manage that yourself? Yeah, I mean, it becomes much harder to. Yeah, I've I've had that challenge before where like I want to test this external service or like smoke test it, but I can't control the data either like the, the seed data or I can't clean up after myself after I create data. So um, I feel like people should have or programmers should have confidence in well, maybe this isn't true, but they should have confidence in the the API that they're consuming that it won't um, you know shift under them. And we all know that happens sometimes, but there's a certain contract there that's not supposed to change. So for the idea of like consumer-driven contracts, where instead of versioning an API, the teams that use your API will write their own tests, and you will run them as part of your services CI. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you care about is, did you break the expected behavior for any of your clients? Um, I forget who said that. It was, it was during a conference talk about some large company. Uh, but I kind of like that. Because every time I've seen somebody try to like version an API, it usually looks like a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I don't understand how to do it well. So, have you tried that before, or do you know anyone that's tried that? Where there's a test suite for the API? Uh, yeah, I think it's like good to make sure, like, so it's basically an integration test, right? You're saying like, mm-hmm. make sure this API hasn't changed and that our code still works with it. But I don't think it's something you need to run as part of. I think I think it's a good good thing to have, um, at least for the happy path. Do you think because it tells you? Like it'll give you a descriptive error when it does fail because you're not gonna be running that test like every hour or every half an hour. So what if it's like Team X deploys next half an hour? You're not gonna know immediately that the test or the API has changed. So what does it buy you? I mean, I guess you can get a good error if you run the suite and narrow it down to this has changed. It's more of an alerting thing, like hey, this changed, heads up, or this broke. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, and we're also assuming that like. This is going to fail because something changed, but in most cases it fails because the service is down. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel the argument is like we'll know right away when it's changed, and we should put in a lot of work for this. Um, um, and it's hard to argue against that because it's sort of saying, like, uh, it's like a do you not care about security or do you not care if the app breaks argument? Like, you're kind of guilted into not arguing against it. At least I feel that way. Well, that's the same the same problem I run into <clears throat> arguing against acceptance tests in general. I mean, I usually write a few, but I don't like comprehensive acceptance tests. And it is hard to argue because they do have a lot of value. I just don't think that the value they provide is worth the cost, which the cost is very high. Yeah, and like acceptance tests are code, and every piece of code you write, like you have to maintain and support for the life that that code exists. Right. And I think people underestimate the the amount of investment that goes into that sort of test. And then by just having a more bloated test suite, you'll inevitably run your tests less often. So if my tests run in 30 seconds, I will run them all the time and I'll know that all my units are behaving correctly. When I have a 40-minute test suite, I'll probably never run that on my machine. I'll just kick it off to CI and then just have my day interrupted because CI will tell me that the test broke and then I was in the middle of something else and then just context switch to like try to fix the, the acceptance test again. Uh, yeah, that's a real cost. Uh, I noticed that Like, if you have to wait and then you don't know until like later on when you have to switch. It's just terrible because you either pause 
and go back and then the current story waits or that that thing isn't constantly on your mind uh, why well, did break i should go fix it uh, so i i think that i like the idea of um so you, you spoke test in staging or production whatever whatever your first you know real system is um on an automated base automated schedule or you know when you deploy um and then just write unit tests unit test your code and when something breaks in one of those environments, find out why. So this requires you to, first of all, have a deploy process where you can deploy pretty regularly. And two, have logging and, and error reporting so that you can know what broke. But if you have those things, you can fix that bug with a unit test. And then that bug should be fixed for the life of your app. Um, and then your test suite will be really, really fast. And your developers will be really, really happy. Justin will be really, really happy. Everybody, everything will be roses. It feels so good to run a test suite and it finishes in like five seconds. I've never had that, As, except on like a gem. Yeah. yeah, you can actually, you can structure Rails tests so that things that don't use Rails um, don't require the app or don't like load Capybara or something. Uh, and you can still well, get the pretty, new, yeah. The new um, RSpec comes with a Rails helper. And, uh, oh yeah, it's everything by default. But, the new yeah. RSpec Rails gem, yeah. That's pretty cool. I have to admit, in Rails, I usually do like testing my models with the database. I feel like you go through extra loops, you do go do more work. I mean, you do get speed, but you do more work, and then you actually get a little less verification. So I do I do like hitting the database. But then when I was doing .NET, my tests would never hit the database. Uh, because, so what's the but, difference between like what what in .NET gave gave you that security that hey I'll need to test my like the RM interactivity? Well, I think Active Record is just more coupled to the database. I don't particularly yeah. love the pattern. It's a very easy one to get your head around, but I think I would prefer like a data mapper pattern. Uh, but yeah, I think just in Rails, the models are just really coupled to the database, and it's weird and painful to try to separate them. So when you say coupled, do you mean like specific behaviors to like say Postgres or MySQL or? Yeah, partially. I mean, you won't know if a finder really works. Mm-hmm. Well, and like in, in active record, yeah, your your attributes don't even exist. Like they're just dynamically loaded from the database. So if there's a users table with a first name, your user class doesn't even have a reference to this first name. It just magically appears because that column's in the database. But then one could argue that writing a test for active record is super easy, but. Um... Writing a test, for, say like your mobile backend, like Parse or something, or some type of API is more difficult. So, is it worth it then? Like if something's easy, maybe you should do it. If it's hard, I'm not saying you shouldn't do hard things, but well, you generally know. just I don't think you should be testing other people's code. So, if you're mm-hmm. going to use something like Parse, you should just trust that it works and just test that you send them the right parameters. Yeah. So, have you all coded for external APIs? And how have you worked with it? I mean, I how used... have you solved it? Have you stubbed it out? <laughs> have you? And which one has been more uh, pl- pleasant to you? I mean, stubbing it out is nice because then, because then it's, I mean, it's what you said and what your pro- your opinion probably is, which is it's a separation of concerns, so that you're you're testing how you expect your application to react to a certain kind of data, and if something changes with the API, you your app probably will break anyway. So, and also you should pay attention to API release notes, I guess. And also that API should have release notes. That would be cool. Mm. So there's Good that. answer, Pam. I like that answer. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I like I like writing you know integration tests against the API, but then in all the other tests, you should just stub your wrapper and not actually. I, I think if you go as far as like building a fake API to match the API you're you're coding against, that's doing just as as much work as like writing acceptance tests, and they're just as flaky. Well, with Rails, we have things like VCR, too. So you can run the acceptance test once, and then the response will get saved, and that saved response will run every time. But but I would much rather like use VCR for the integration test and run that as part of my you know entire build suite, but be able to like remove the cassettes once in a while and, and run against real live data, I guess, probably on CI. But like if if you're running an integration tests against that API and you're using VCR and you know it's returning that everything's passing, like why would then then why bother running it against VCR also if you're acceptance tests? Because it's a lot faster and you know you know you, you can know the data that you're going to get back. I mean, I I know it's faster. But I'm, I guess I'm saying it sounds like you're advocating writing acceptance tests with VCR, whereas I'm saying don't write acceptance tests. <laughs> Right. Well, I, I want to, I mean, I, I normally do like a few, just a few smoke tests, but if one of them has to hit an API, I use VCR. Are there things like VCR for JavaScript, Pam? There's a thousand. There's a thousand? Uh, yeah, probably. I'd have to remember, so VCR is, it, it plays it back stuff to you? Yeah, if, if you make if you have an HTTP client, it records requests and gives you back responses automatically. Yeah, I mean, you say that, the the joke that there's probably 80 of them in JavaScript, but I really haven't seen it, so... So my friend Trek uh, has a project for Ember called Pretender, where you can stub uh, stub any Ajax request. But I guess that's more stubbing, that's not recording. There's a VCR for Node on NPM, and it's called VCR. <laughs> there's also one for Go called DVR. Ha, <laughs> Go is in Go the future. Came, Go came out later. <laughs> is there a Blu-ray yet? Ooh, mm-hmm. you can we can write that. You should buy that domain. Are you ready for picks? Sure, Justin. What's your pick? Oh man, you're gonna do that. Um, I think you should take a look at this project called Safe JavaScript. It's on GitHub. Uh, the repo is signlaw s i n e l a w slash s j s, and it is essentially uh, type checking for JavaScript, but it infers all types. So you just have a normal JavaScript file and you run this against it and it tells you if you're trying to do something, you know, stringy with an integer or vice versa or you're trying to call something as a function that's not a function. Um, I haven't tried it and it seems pretty early on, but I kind of like the idea of a low friction way for developers to add safety to the programs without, you know, getting in the way. So you don't have to write any type annotations, you don't have to do anything, especially your code, it just... Yells at you if something if something's probably broken. Uh, yeah, SJS. Pam, do you have a pick? I have a couple, so I'm gonna pick a dollar Swift. Uh, so I'm I'm writing Swift and I'm running into the JSON issues and trying to figure out what what how I want to deal with that and do functional things. And then I found that there's dollar, which is basically like lodash or underscore for Swift. So that's really cool. Uh, and then there's a couple blogs that both have the word command line in them, and so I'm picking both of them. Uh, in the end, there will be the command line, and in the beginning was the command line. So I guess maybe I should have said that one first. Um, the In the end blog post is good. Uh, I have yet to read the in the beginning was the command line, but I think it's one of those classic things. It's, I think, an actual book by Neil Stevenson. Are you all familiar with this? 
someone in a work chat room mentioned it. Yeah. And so I bookmarked it. And looks like the whole, whatever it is, if it's a book or something, it's online. It's a very is long Neil, web page. Neil Stevenson, the sword guy? Yeah. With, I think that may have been when it came up with the XKCD thing. No, he was like he did nope. a Kickstarter for like a sword video game that I don't think I ever actually. Oh came. no, there was. Oh, I'm I'm probably mixing up chat things. Oh, a uh, speculative fiction writer. I don't know. Someone just mentioned it, and so I bookmarked it and put it in my picks folder. So it's a pick. Jervon, do you have a pick? I do have a pick. Um, my music pick is a song called "Elastic Heart" by Sia S I A, um, and my programming pick. It feels like an inner circle thing. But uh, Justin wrote this tool called Dot Music, and you all know my love for music. And it displays uh, your current artists that you're listening to for RDO, Spotify, um, iTunes. And an iTunes. And I've actually I used it this week, and it's pretty cool. So. Awesome. Yeah. So if you have any thoughts, you should give feedback, and the link will be in the pics. That's so- it. So my pick is a board game, and I play a lot of board games, and I had more fun playing this than I have in a long time. It's called Dead of Winter. It's a co-op game, so you're all trying to survive the winter in the uh, post-zombie apocalypse. Uh, And the fun part about it is you're trying to survive, but every single player has their own personal goals. So you might be a germaphobe, and your goal is to end the game with five medicine. So at the end of the game, you might just die, or you might live and still lose, or you can live and win. And there's also potentially a betrayer, uh, so that, that makes things interesting. So you're trying to figure out if people are being selfish because they have their own personal agenda, or if they're actually trying to make the colony die. Uh, and I was the betrayer. It was really fun. I uh, My goal was to have five people die and have the team lose, and uh, I outed myself when I was able to give five people frostbite. And then they exiled me from the colony, and then I got a new goal, and it was to like have them forgive me and make the colony live, which was really hard because I gave five of them frostbite. <laughs> so Dead of Winter is my pick. Um, Pam, can you tell us what's on the docket for next week? Yeah, so next episode, we, are, we have a reading assignment. And so um, my, my buddy uh, tweeted about... Um, about that he thought it would be cool if people who actually understand academic papers would volunteer for office hours to tutor people. And so I said, well, you should do that on Turing Complete. So we're going to have Brian McKenna and we're going to read this book, Propositions as Types. Or sorry, a book, a paper. Um, and so that's say, what we're a, doing next episode. For a book. No, sorry, not to spring yeah, that I was on like, you. Oh, man, I didn't know that. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So I'll talk to you guys uh, next time. Cool. So show notes are at Turing.cool slash 36. Follow us on Twitter at TuringCool and uh, talk to you guys next week. We made 36 of these. Apparently. Crazy town. All right. right. Bye. Bye. See you guys.